When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Bubbling Adventure, a podcast all about kids and how educating them positively can impact their entire life as well as society. Each week, we're having conversations with guests on different themes, and our aim is to have open discussions, share different points of view, and learn in a non-judgmental way. Today, we're welcoming Bill Pratt to talk about finance and how you can teach money skills to children. Very important in my opinion. So we will talk about the way he was raised, and he will also give practical advice on how you can start today. The best way to support this podcast is to subscribe if you haven't already and write a review if you're listening from Apple Podcasts. But without further ado, let's begin. Hi, Bill. How are you today? Hi, Julie. I'm doing great. Thank you. Nice. So could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Uh, I'm Bill Pratt. I'm a college professor who teaches personal finance, corporate finance, economics, and business classes. And I'm also a business and money professor. So I just, I, I'm one of those people that understands money and I just love talking about it. <laughs> That's interesting. So you must help a lot of people, I'm sure. But could you please tell us a bit about your story and what led you to become a financial expert in the first place? Yeah, actually, it started when I was a kid. And it was kind of funny because the way I was raised, uh, and we grew up in a very lower middle class family, but my parents were very open and transparent about our finances all the time. And I don't think they set out to be, okay, we're going to teach our kid about money. It wasn't like that, but they're just open. So even from a young age, mom would have her little pen and paper or pencil and paper, and she would be writing out a budget. And she would be explaining to me, well, we wanted to get an above ground pool, you know, the kind that's about $1,000 or so. And we want to get above ground pool. But if we do that, then we can't take a vacation this year. Mm. But if we take a vacation, but we have a really little Christmas, then we can get a 
pull next summer. And, and those were the kinds of things that we talked about all the time. And what I did not realize then is she was teaching me about things such as scarcity and budgeting and finance. And that's kind of what got started. And then there was a radio program she listened to every time we were in the car, they were talking about money. It's like a 30 minute money segment. And I really tended to like that guy. <laughs> he had some really great advice and it just kind of carried me through. And the, the funny thing is when I went to college, I started to go because I wanted to be an ER physician. And what I realized was I hated my biology classes. I hated my chemistry classes, but I loved my business economics classes. So I switched majors to economics about halfway through college. Interesting. Yeah. And so then what happened? Did you start in the corporate world before you became a coach? Well, so what happened was, so then my story from there was I actually became an economist for the federal government, for the U.S. government. Uh, and so I did that for five years. While I was an economist, I decided to get my master's degree. So I got my MBA. And what happened was, and this is a fun little story when it comes to getting a job. One of my professors was a, an adjunct professor. So they actually worked for Citigroup full time. And I was doing really well in his class. And I saw this job opening and I said to him, do you know anything about this job? It looks really good, like a good fit. And he said, oh, I know the guy who's in charge of that department. If you have a copy of your resume, I'll take it. Being a very good MBA student, of course, I had copies of my resume handy and I handed it to him. And then I said, oh, what about a cover letter? And he said, I'll be your cover letter. Mm. And what a great lesson there on building relationships and networking, right? I mean, that's a whole nother story we could go down. But, but that was how I started learning how important networking was. Anyway, so I ended up getting a job at Citigroup. And I worked there for several years. And then I had a, a brother-in-law who's about 12, 13 years younger than me. And he moved in with my wife and I when he was going to college. And he asked me a question one day. He said, what's the difference between a debit card and a credit card? And I thought, well, that's a silly question. And then I realized, I bet that's a normal question, actually. So I decided to write a book then um, specifically to help college-age students understand the difference. And I thought, yeah, but I work for cities. So that might be weird. So I actually went back to the federal government. And, uh, and during my long commutes in and out of Washington, D.C., that's when I wrote that, that book. Um, and that's kind of what got me started there. And then I got a job working at East Carolina University in their Financial Wellness Institute teaching where we had 500 students a semester taking a personal finance class. And that was an amazing experience. And that's really where I started getting into money coaching, not for my students, because that was a different relationship. You know, everything we did for them was just free. I mean, I was their professor, but we started getting adults around campus asking questions all the time. Well, how do I get out of debt? How do I pay this off? What do I do? How do I teach my kids? So my colleagues and I, who became co-authors, we wrote a textbook, we created our own company where we did financial education. From there, I split off and now I do business and money coaching separately. Plus we have our financial education company as well. Hmm. That's kind of the whole story, I guess, um, that, that kind of brought me from a little kid listening to my mom talk about money all the way to doing, you know, coaching and stuff for pretty much everybody now, anybody. So. Yeah, but that's amazing because so obviously you learned a few things, at least like you got an interest or just good habits, thanks to your mom when you were a kid. And then you sort of like continued at like studying and then learning at the job. And then the book was sort of like the moment where you're like, I can actually help people. So that's interesting. Yeah, it really is. And, and one of the things that, that I learned about being an author, 
is that, and, and I know a lot of people out there that like, the, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. Even though the book industry is kind of shrinking because people have so much other media. Uh, but the thing about writing a book is you don't necessarily write a book because the book is going to help you make money. Very few people ever make money on a book, really. You write a book because it establishes you as an authority in that subject field. And then it opens up so many opportunities. Uh, so, for example, the job I got at ECU, East Carolina, mm -hmm. was because of the book I wrote. That's how they got I got their attention. I partnered with some nonprofits, and the reason I was able to partner with them is because I wasn't Bill Pratt, the money coach, or Bill Pratt, some guy over here as a professor. I was the author of these books, and uh, you know, so so many opportunities, speaking engagements, and so forth that I get to do all stem from the book. So almost think of a book as a marketing tool, yeah. essentially, in essence. And I hope people read it. Well, it's, it's been a few years since it's been last <laughs> last updated, but I hope people read it. Uh, but certainly it opened up a world of opportunity. But the important thing is I got exposure to be able to, to, to share my message with lots of people, whether it's from the stage on air or whatever. No, that that's true. And yeah, it's about being an expert and then it just opens doors and relationships as we touched on before. Uh, and so do you think it's important to start understanding personal finance from a young age? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll tell you here, let me give you a little story about the difference between the way I was raised and the way my wife was raised and then the big clash. <laughs> so I already explained how I was raised very open. And I'll give you another example. One day, I think it was right before sixth grade or seventh grade, somewhere in that range. I don't remember exactly, but it was, you know, around middle school, that sort of age. And what happened was we go to the store. It was a discount store, kind of like your Primark in London, a store like that. And my mom hands me an envelope when we get to the store. And this is about two, three weeks before school's getting ready to start. And I'm like, what's this? And I open up and there's a bunch of cash in it, maybe maybe $100 back then, maybe the equivalent to about $200 or what is that, about 160 euros or something. But anyway, it's about $200 in today's dollars. And I said, what's this? And she said, that's your clothing budget for back to school shopping. And I thought, I've never had $200. Like that was a lot of money for me. Yeah. And what was interesting was it changed the way I saw everything at the store. You know, before she handed me that, there was this really nice pair of shoes that were $120. But if you have $200 in an envelope and you see if I have to pull over half of it out to buy those shoes, suddenly I found a $40 pair of shoes that look just fine. But if she had not given me the money, I would have wanted the $120 pair of shoes. And so, you know, and again, it wasn't, I don't think so. Mom wasn't going, you know, I'm going to teach my kid how to budget. So when he gets older, it was just simply her way of being practical about, look, I know he's going to want $500 worth of stuff, but we don't have 500. We have a budget of 200. So I'm just going to give him the, the envelope and let him decide so he can see. And that, I mean, to this day, I remember that. And it really changed the way I saw budgeting and shopping making choices mm -hmm. and so forth. And that was kind of how I was raised. I had an allowance. So if I said, hey, mom and dad in high school, I said, hey, mom and dad, I'd like to go on a ski trip. They would say, sure, you need me to sign something, go for it. I'm sure you have money saved. Where I'm telling you about my wife. So when she was growing up, she did not know anything about her parents' income. She did not know if her parents even owed money on their house or if they already paid it off. She had no idea where I knew what my parents' monthly payment was, okay? I knew how many years left they had on their mortgage, things like that. My wife did not get an allowance. Her family was also middle class. And so, but if she wanted to go on a ski trip, for example, she would say, hey, mom and dad, I'd like to go on a ski trip. And they'd say, how much is it? 
and she'd say $60 and they say, okay. And they'd write her a check for 60 and she'd take it in and that's how it was done. So the difference was my parents basically gave me a certain amount to do, to work with. And that was mine. Now, I mean, if I wanted something really expensive, maybe they'd help, but you know, that was kind of how it worked where she was always, I guess you call more like a centralized control <laughs> where she had to go to her parents each time because she didn't have her own money until eventually in high school, she started working. But here's the interesting part about all that. Later on in life, for example, when we're married, I'm talking to my mom on the phone one day and I'm telling mom, you wouldn't believe this mom. I just got a pay raise, uh, five more percent. Now I'm making X. I used to make Y and my wife overheard me and she about threw a fit. Like it was the most horrible thing ever. I can't believe you told your parents how much money you make. And, and, and it was just devastating to her that I would share that. And it never occurred to me that her and I see money differently. You know, when we first got married, I put together a spreadsheet with a pie chart that showed like where our money was being spent mm. and how long it would take us to save for a down payment on a house. And I was very proud of this, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I showed her this. And, and what I found out later is she was thinking to herself, this is one month into marriage. And she said, I wonder if it's too late to get a refund on the wedding Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> because I literally scared her. And what I realized was I had goals in my mind and a money attitude in my mind and just assumed everybody was the same way. She had her own set of attitude in her mind and assumed everybody was the same way. And it turns out we were raised different and we had different values with money and, uh, and different ways of openness and so forth. And that was a big life lesson for me. And I had to adjust accordingly. Uh, but but the, the moral of the story there is the way you raise your kid with money totally determines how they see money when they get older, because you form that foundation. Is money a taboo topic? Like, oh, we don't talk about money. Or is money a just another topic? We talk about food. Hey, what do you want for dinner? We talk about budget. Hey, we have $1,000. Should we take a vacation or get a pool? You know, that kind of thing. And so it's just, it really does make a difference uh, throughout a kid's lifetime. And, and here I am, business and money coaching in the future. All, and it all started with mom showing me a budget and letting, giving me literally an allocation of dollars when I was a youngster to uh, to go do my own shopping. Yeah, no, that's true. Even just opening the conversation or having money conversations in front of your kids, you know, like at the dinner table and talking about things, even though sometimes it's tough, sometimes, you know, it's the end of the month, there's not much left. Obviously, you have to be careful, like what you say, but also just like having, you know, filling out your taxes in front of your kids so that they even like are aware that this is something you have to do as an adult because... I wasn't personally, but also I think maybe some parents don't feel like they can because they don't feel like they master that subject and maybe they have like some problems of their own. So I don't know what you would say to them. For example, can they still talk about finances if they're not 100% like financially stable? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really called parenting, right? I mean, I don't know. Every parent I know would tell you, well, are you an expert in health? No. But do you decide what your kids eat? Yes. Are you an expert in exercise? No. But do you decide how much time your kids are allowed to spend in front of TV and how much they need to get outside and play? Yes. And the same thing applies to money. But for some reason, while we're okay with the fact that we're not an expert in any of these other categories and we have no problem raising kids, when it comes to the topic of money, people do fear, well, I'm not an expert. So who am I to teach my kid? Mm, well, you're the parent. <laughs> That's the answer, right? And you really do. And, and one of the things you can be open about with kids is that, 
look, I don't know everything about money. I wasn't taught this in school. I wish I was. And so what I want for you is for you to know more than I did. Um, and so you can be open about that. The other thing you can be open about is you can choose how much detail to give the kid. You, your kid doesn't need to know that you make $50,000 a year and your mortgage is $2,000 a month and your car payment's three fifty. dollars You don't have to get to that level if you don't want to. But you should let the kid know you have a house payment and you have a car payment. And when you go to work and you make money, when you work on Monday, that's for taxes. When you work on Tuesday and Wednesday, that's for the mortgage. When you work on Thursday, that's for the car. And then when you go to work on Friday, that's the money you get to spend to eat, <laughs> if that yeah. makes sense. In other words, you're letting them understand that there's a reason you go to work and that a portion of what you work for is the house, the car, the vacations, the, the food, you know, all those different things. And so, because most people, most kids, there's a disconnect between mom and dad go to work because it's the thing you do. And then we spend money because it's the thing you want to do, but they never really put the two together that that's why you go to work to make a certain amount of money. The other thing is this, kids are very astute. Okay. They, they pick up on things a lot more than parents realize. So the kids pick up on things about money, but it's kind of like, imagine you're listening to a song in another room and it's not quite loud enough and you only hear certain lyrics or certain notes, you get a wrong view of what that song is about because you don't hear the whole song. And that's what's happening with kids. They, they pick up little things. They'll see the fighting. They'll see the swiping of the credit card or the inserting of the debit card and things like that. But they don't see the part where mom and dad are paying the bills, where they're logging into the account, trans oops, transferring money to the bank or, or from the bank to the you know mortgage company or whatever. So I think it's important that knowing that kids see half the transactions, we need to give them the either access or at least share some information so they, they get to understand the other half, which is where you actually pay for it. And I think that's one of the probably big crises, if you will, is, is just that. Like I said, they see half the transaction but they don't see the hard half <laughs> where you actually have to pay for it. I totally agree. And I know that, so I was raised, like my parents always pushed me to work. We didn't have like many conversations about money, although they were working together. So sometimes, you know, at the dinner table, it's just like business talks. But <laughs> I have to say that they pushed me to work. And what it taught me is that like the value of money because I think it's so hard to even understand like what an hour of salary is. And sometimes you just ask like, oh, can I have that? Can I have that? And then once you start working when you're a teenager, I was a teenager, I really was like, oh, okay. So I get it why sometimes they say no. And you know, right. it's not just, so I don't know how, how is there, do you think like another way of really understanding the value of money? Yeah, I mean, and one, I completely agree with you. I think that one thing that helps with teenagers is when they start looking at hours. So let's say a teenager, I'm just making up a number, $10 an hour, easy round number. So if a teenager wants to buy something for $50, it's a lot easier to realize I have to go work five hours to buy that thing. And, you know, is it really worth five hours of my time to go buy it? That's that sort of thing. Of course, I'm not even accounting for taxes. I'm just, you know, keeping it simple. But um, so it actually gets even more expensive, right? Maybe seven hours after taxes to go buy something for 50 or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think that definitely helps. And one thing that parents can do with kids is help them see dollars and time when they're young. They could give them assignments to do. For example, let's say the parent says, okay, if you clean the, the family room, 
this is for a little tiny kid, right? Depending on the age, you, if you clean the family room, I'll give you a dollar or, you know, something or $5, whatever, but, you know, something along those lines. And if you have a yard, that makes it a little easier if you're, you know, your own house than a yard, because then you can give them yard work to do and, and you know, the more, more activities. It could be painting the fence, something that's even bigger, um, but start giving them tasks and pay them accordingly. And then now that gives them a perspective, even if it's not a lot. Mm. The point is this, it gives them enough of a perspective that when you're at the mall or whatever, and they say, oh, can I have that? And it's a hundred dollars. And let's say you pay them, I don't know, uh, $10 to mow the lawn, just as an example, you could say, is this worth you mowing the lawn 10 times this whole summer for this one item? And, other, and I'm not saying you don't buy it for them. I'm, what I'm saying is you're now you've given them something that they can attach their mind to that they can associate time with money. And that's one easy way to, uh, to get them to start thinking in those terms. Mm. No, very interesting. But so obviously personal finance is not even understanding the value of money. It's a lot of different things. Like you mentioned, even like credits, savings, you know, like things like that how are there like any ways any maybe games or things to do to have them a little bit like your mom like handing you uh, an envelope of cash sure is, is there anything else yeah i mean that's certainly one thing <laughs> i guess you could call it you know, around 12 years old or whatever somewhere around that age uh, is a good time that you could actually give them Uh, that budget concept right when they're you know back to school clothes summer clothes shopping Uh, shoe shopping, you know, if they're on a sports team and they want to get some equipment, you know, pick a budget and figure out what might make sense and, and have them sort of make up their own. That's one way to do it. Another thing you can do is, so, so my, my methodology that I like to tell people is when you purchase something, well, first of all, when you make money, that 10% of your money should be used for uh, savings. And so at least 10%. And what I would recommend is say 10% should be used for some form of savings long-term. Like literally even a 12-year-old, it could be when you're in college, you're going to want some spending money. Let's put 10% away for that. And then another 10% would be more for short-term things such as, hey, this summer you might want a new game for your PlayStation or Xbox. So put money away for that. And then another 10% should be used for some type of charity, whether it's a, a place of worship or, uh, you know, a, a community type of charity organization, you know, dogs, pets, children, whatever, whatever you're trying to, you know, the environment, whatever your cause is. And, and, and what it does is it gives them different values. So $100 to them is now $70 of spending money, right? But they're also seeing that because I earned something or grandma gave me money or whatever, now a portion of that money gets to help, you know, starving children, starving dogs, <laughs> starving planet. Mm. And then, you know, so it gives them a sense of value. And that's something that carries later in life. And, and the reason I, what I learned from that is if you don't start putting 10% aside for savings for long term and for charity in the beginning, Then what happens is you lock yourself into spending all of your money and it's really hard to go back and start giving 10%. Um, so that's, that's always good. And also gives them a different perspective and value. So that's one of the first things. The other thing I recommend is that when a person spends money on something, and I don't mean a small item, but if they buy a cell phone, if they buy something that's expensive enough that, that a store will try to sell you a warranty for it, right? <laughs> something like that. I always recommend when you do 20% 
of whatever you're spending, you should put in your savings account. So think about this. If you bought a, a cell phone for 500, this would be a little bit older kids usually. If you buy a cell phone for $500, that means you should also put $100 in your savings account. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because if you can't afford the extra 20% to put in your savings, that means you were trying to buy something too expensive. And the other thing it does is you're, by putting that 20% in your savings is you're establishing an emergency fund so that if you bought a cell phone, put 20% away, you buy a new laptop, you put 20% away, mm -hmm. you buy an Xbox, you put 20% away. When one of those eventually breaks, you have money now in your savings account to go replace it on your own. And it feels really good. I mean, it's annoying because you're like, I didn't want to have to go buy a new Xbox. I didn't mean to drop it, you know, but on the bright side, I have the money. I don't have to beg mom and dad. I don't have to save up for three months. I can go tomorrow and replace it because I've been responsibly saving 20% every time I purchased a large item. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think, yeah, having a, an emergency account and just is, it, it makes such a difference. And I think a lot of people end up in depth because of that, because you cannot, you're not prepared. And yeah, so I think it's great. Like I honestly never thought about it when I was a kid and I was lucky enough to find out quite young because you, you, right. you never know. So no, it, it's great. I, what I like to say is an emergency fund turns a crisis into an inconvenience. Exactly. And it's, it's essentially what, what it does. So I think that's a, a key learning. The other thing you can do, especially even if you have one kid, but particularly if you have more, I guess you could make it a competition, but even with one kid, you could gamify it a little bit. So when they get an allowance or get money or earn money or do activities that you pay them for around the house, whatever, have them set money aside an account and, you know, chart it for the little kids. They love charts. So you could chart it. You could almost have like a, a $10, $20, all the way up to a hundred, for example, and put a little sticker beside each one on their way up to a hundred dollars until they hit a hundred. And maybe you could even make it a game that says, once you've saved a hundred dollars in your account, I'll match it. Mm. So you'll get a bonus hundred dollars once you save a hundred. And what you're doing is while the incentive for them is to get a hundred so that you give them an extra hundred, The point is you've taught them to save and you've got them in the habit of saving and it only costs you a hundred dollars to do it, which is a lot cheaper than bailing them out from a $5,000 credit card debt in five years. <laughs> That's true. So we talked about the value of money savings. Is there any other aspect of personal finance that you think is important to get familiar with as a kid? I, I do think, I think it's important for kids to understand and for parents to understand this too. Another sort of, aha moment, I guess, for me is this debt takes away choices. And I think that's something that can be really emphasized well with kids um, where, you know, again, I mentioned at the very beginning, if mom and dad are going to work and they say, well, we have to go to work. And particularly if the kid wants something, I want to go here. Why can't I have to go to work? Why do you have to go to work? Well, you see the first two days of work every week just pays for the house. So I have to go to work on Monday and Tuesday just to pay for the house. Because why? Because you owe money on the house. In other words, you have a debt, which is the mortgage, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have the choice to be able to not work. Um, you have a car, mm -hmm. let's say, again, you have you don't have the choice. Or, you know, I'd love to send you here or would like to take this big vacation, but we can't take a vacation because we have a car payment. So debt takes away choices. And I think that's really key to emphasize. We actually do a fun activity in class. I can't get into the details here, but we do a fun activity in class where we actually, pre-COVID, <laughs> where we actually have students play a little game and it illustrates the concept of shortage and how debt takes away choices. So even from the youth 
from teenage years, even to the adult. It's just one of those things that people don't really think about. But if once they give it some thought, right, debt takes away choices. So it's not saying never get in debt, but it is saying understand every time you do, you've taken away some future choices from yourself. Mm, that's true. And I've even seen some like apps or games that, you know, you have a budget and you're supposed to, let's say, like build a house according to the budget. I don't know. It might be also like a fun way to understand like, oh, you cannot get all the nice things. You have to make choices. Right. You, you are absolutely right. In fact, I actually wanted to be able to teach a entire class just using a game, but I really couldn't get it approved, especially at the college level. But what I'm going by is there are so many games where the whole point of the game, let's say, is to build an empire or to build a fleet if it's a sci-fi game, whatever it is. And what they do is they give you resources. You have a certain amount of metal, you have a certain amount of gold, you have a certain amount of mm. whatever, electricity, you know, you, you name it. And where essentially you're budgeting and you say, well, I'd like to build more guns for my ship if it's a spaceship, but then I can't fly as fast or, you know, like those kinds of trade-offs, right? Or, or you know, if it's a farm game, whatever. The, the, but the point is they're learning, but they're not learning. And the reason they're not learning is because what's missing is the person following up with them. So the game gives them the information and they need a person such as a parent or a teacher, if they did it in a classroom, to be able to then explain what they just did, then they connect the pieces. So the problem is they're not connecting the pieces, you know, where, well, why did you not do that? Well, because I'll run out of, 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 let's say, silver. And you say, well, then now you understand the concept of budgets, right? Where mm -hmm. you only have so much money or in this game, so much silver, so much titanium, whatever it is. And, uh, and, and but the point is they're budgeting within the game, but there's nobody sort of tying those concepts together between the game and real life. And if somebody were to just tie that together, we could literally educate kids about budgeting and scarcity and re of resources just by having them play a game if somebody then explains it to them and has a conversation. So it's a good way also for parents to open up a conversation about a game their kid might be playing, but apply it in terms of real life money. Yeah. I get it. No, that's true. Because like we did something similar in high school, actually, and it was with the teacher and we had to build a sustainable town. And then, you know, like some things are more expensive, but then in the long right. run, they save energy or, you know, it was quite nice to be able to have to consider everything in long term, short term. But obviously the teacher was also here to guide us. Yeah, it's true. I think there's only so much you can understand without having some sort of like guidance and clear rules as well. Right. But yeah, is there any advice that you would like to share? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the number one thing I would say for, for most people from whether for the parent themselves and from a parent teaching a child is, uh, and we didn't really talk about this a whole lot, is the concept of long-term saving. Really, people understand that the most expensive purchase that everybody's going to make in their life, and people say it's a house, it's a house, it's not a house. The most expensive thing anybody's ever going to purchase in life is the freedom to not have to work anymore. Uh, we call that retirement. And retirement is expensive, right? Now, I mean, there are some people with defined benefit plans where you get a, a, a pension and that's a little bit different, but those are going away more and more. And so it, it's really important for the child as well as the parent to start focusing on long-term savings. Again, there's the short-term savings we talked about, which is I want an Xbox in three months or something like that. That's a short-term saving. 
But there's also the longer term saving. Think about the big picture, um, whether that means maybe getting them into bonds or buying you know, Apple stock or Disney stock or whatever they're into, but where they start getting the concept of ownership and investments and that sort of thing. And I think that's critical. And I think that parents can do that in a fun way, again, by using companies that kids are familiar with and maybe even buying you know, just small shares of, of, of individual stocks. And while the real investment advice would be to not buy individual stocks, but get into the funds. The point is it gets them starting to thinking about investing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really one of the, the key steps that makes kids see things differently. And those who get exposed to investing as a youth are much more likely to invest as an adult, which is going to lead them to financial freedom. So. No, yeah, good advice. Yeah, this way, because I think they could also learn together with their kids, because I think not all the parents are even investing so it's a good way also to maybe figure it out as a family and see where it didn't work where it worked you know because i think investing is a lot of also just like exploring your options and sometimes you have to mess up and then you're like oh okay maybe that wasn't the right decision but why Right. So I think maybe even having that conversation with kids is interesting. Yeah. And, and the, the big thing is you can look at it in the short term, but make sure they focus on the long term because you might buy Apple stock today and then next week you log in, it's down $10 a share. But what you want to look at are the graphs that show you where it was five years ago so that you can kind of see that, okay, in a given week or month, it might drop for a while, such as when COVID happened, it dropped a lot, right? But then, but look at the long-term trend yes. and you can see that this is why this is called a long-term investment because it's not for when you're a year older from now, it's for when you're 10 years older from now or 20 years older from now. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that's a, a good way to look at it and really understand. Um, and I agree with you. I think that, that, you know, especially if you're just doing maybe not your main retirement account with the large dollars, but a side account you might start that I think with small dollar amounts, I think that'd be a fun way to log in with your kid there, show them, look at the graphs and just show them, look, you know, if this goes like it did the last five years, this is how much we're going to have five years from now. And it's just kind of a neat way to, to see how that works. Mm, very good. Well, a lot of things to, to consider and a lot of games to plan. So thank you so much for this. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me here. And uh, you can have your people if they're interested. Um, I have a, a little thing called yeah. Richer Than Your Boss. Um, if they want to download for free, it's uh, they just go to berichertheanyourboss.com. It'll forward them right to it. It just has some typical finance advice. It's not for the kids, but this is some information for the adult so that maybe the parents can gain a little more mm -hmm. confidence about money and it makes it a lot easier to share with their child. Perfect. So yeah, we'll put also the link in the description. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yes, thanks for having me, Julie. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Feel free to share if you think it might be helpful to someone you know. If you enjoyed this episode, then please make sure to write a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and subscribe if you haven't already. That's it for me. See you soon with the next episode. And in the meantime, have a lovely day. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.